Here, let me ask you, please, um, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, I pray now that on this morning that um, feels a bit early to us, that you will enable us even now to, to uh, consider the scripture for all of us, to listen well, to think reverently, faithfully, to receive from you that good word uh, that will enable us uh, to persevere in the faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, please. I want to begin with verse 11 and read through chapter 13 and verse 10. Long reading, but you're accustomed to that. So 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, please. This is the word of the Lord. I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less fav- for, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here is the here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself didn't burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent a brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I came, I may, when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they've practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I'll not spare them, since you speak, seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you. 
that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. All right. Now, that was a long passage, I know, that we read. And I only want to deal with a piece of it, really, and and kind of sort of towards the end in chapter 13 and verse 5. We'll come to that in a moment about examining ourselves and testing ourselves. But, But I want first to think through how it is that Paul has gotten to that place where he's commanding them to examine themselves and to test themselves, what it meant for them, what it means for us, to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, to come to that affirmation that Christ Jesus actually is in us. Now, Paul, of course, is an apostle sent out. That's what the word apostle means, sent out uh, by Jesus, sent to, uh, first and foremost, to the Gentiles, non Jewish people to the Gentiles. Church really began in Jerusalem, as you know, and, 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 and stayed there for a time. But, but, but Paul was commissioned to, to be sent out to the Gentiles. You remember he was saved. He came to faith in Jesus uh, rather dramatically. He began religiously as a Pharisee, uh, a Jewish sect that was very particular about the law and obeying the law. And you remember that he was zealous against the church, zealous against Christians. He would beat them, have them beaten or imprisoned or even killed. And so he was a terrorist, really, against the church. And and, and so he was on his way one day with the commissioning from the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and to deal with believers, Christians there. You remember, he met Jesus. Jesus met him uh, uh, there. And he was converted. He believed in Jesus because this risen Christ met him there. And also commissioned to go to the Gentiles as an apostle of Jesus. And he was told that he would suffer greatly in the midst of all, in the midst of doing that. And so he made his way in various places to bring the gospel. One of those places was Corinth. Uh, no one believed in Jesus. No one had heard of the resurrected Jesus until Paul got there. And uh, he brought the gospel to Corinth, stayed there 18 months. Some discouragement in the midst of that. You can read in the book of Acts. But when he stayed there 18 months, founded the church. He left there. After he left, he found from reports and a letter they had written to him, some difficulties in the church, some gross sexual sin, especially there and uh, and, and so he ultimately made a visit there that he calls a, a, a painful visit where those who were in sin, it appears, didn't repent. And so he had to come back and write to them, uh, which he did. And still he was wondering about their repentance and um, heard back again, wrote again. And so we find himself in this relationship. And so now he comes to them in this passage and he says, I'm about to make my third visit to you. The first visit was when he founded the church. The second visit was the painful visit when he uncovered and saw the gross sin that was going on in the church uh, in Corinth. And now he's about to make a third visit. And you remember, too, we've been talking about this. This is there's a there's a. A difficulty between uh, uh, Paul and this church, that there are those who have come into the church after Paul left to disparage him. And they are calling themselves true apostles of Jesus. And Paul is calling them false apostles or super apostles, as he calls them very sarcastically. 
And so he finds himself in this letter having to defend his apostleship. He doesn't like doing that. Uh, in fact, he says in uh, verse 11 of chapter 12, you forced me to it. I shouldn't have had to have done this. Uh, you should have just thought about me and realized I'm the one who brought you the message of the gospel in the first place. And when anyone came into town to disparage me, you should have stood up for me, but you didn't. And so now, uh, very reluctantly, I'm having to uh, stand up, if you will, uh, for myself. You saw the signs of, of, of an apostle, um, all the signs that pointed to the fact that I was an apostle. Yes, miracles no doubt happened. But the key miracle, the key thing that happened in Corinth that attested to Paul's being an apostle is that when he preached the gospel to them, they believed it. And it came in that kind of power so that it changed their lives, changed their hearts, so that they could believe it. Uh, and, and, and Paul uh, speaks to them, uh, frankly, uh, he says, now I'm coming in verse 14 for the third time. Um, one of your criticisms of me is that I took advantage of you financially because you could never get the fact that when I came to Corinth, uh, I never asked you for money. And you wondered how I lived. Well, I made a living by making tents, but also there were others who supported me in this. Remember, when I first showed up in Corinth, there weren't any Christians for me to take up an offering from. When these super apostles come in, you're all there and they're taking your money left and right. And you were shocked that I took up an offering, but it wasn't for me. It was for the poor in Jerusalem. And, and, and now you think I... I'm using that money for myself. No, 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 no. Remember, Titus is the one who came and got it. And this other brother that everybody knew and trusted. So no. And I'm going to come back and I'm still not asking you for money. The illustration he uses is because I'm the father. uh, I save up for you, the children. The children don't save up for the parents. I never tell my kids that verse. But... um, (laughs) But, but, but you get, he says that that's, that's, the, that's the relationship that we have, you know? And so um, I'm coming to you and I've never taken advantage of you. But here's my concern. He begins to talk about in verse 19 of chapter 12. He says, really, you think I'm spending all my time defending myself? Not really. I don't really care about myself. I'm depending, defending the gospel. Uh, I don't care what people think about me. Uh, Some people love me. Some people hate me. Some people honor me. Some people disparage me. That's not the point. The point is in the disparaging of me as an apostle, Paul says, has come the disparaging, the downgrading of the gospel. And now you're believing those who aren't apostles who are bringing a different Jesus and a different gospel. And so now I have to convince you that, no, I'm really an apostle and I really had the real gospel. And so that's the only reason why I'm doing this. And even as you remember in Paul's boasting, he's not boasting in anything that makes him look terribly good. He's boasting in his sufferings and he's boasting in his weakness. And he says, even the thing that might impress you the most, the thing that happened 14 years ago, the thing that this great vision that I had when I was taken into the very presence of the Lord, I can't tell you about. It could puff me up in pride. In fact, the Lord sent through Satan, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to harass me, so that I wouldn't be proud. But that brought weakness. And in that weakness, I turned to God. 
and trusted him. And his power then is realized, manifested, made perfect in my weakness. So I boast in my weakness. So now Paul comes to them and he says to them in verse 13, this is the third time I'm coming to you. So he, he kind of bookends between verse 14 of chapter 12 and now here. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. His fear when he comes is they haven't really repented. His fear when he comes is he's going to see the same sin he saw in them in his second visit. And, and that's his concern. His, his concern, as he puts at the end of chapter 12, verse uh, 21, uh, he says, uh, verse 20, he says, my fear is that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder when I come. Or that in verse, uh, whatever verse it is, the last one, verse 21, at the very end of chapter 12, he says, uh, I may have to come in and mourn over many who have sinned and not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they've practiced. And so, so, so Paul's saying, I'm going to come and again to you in this third visit and and my concern is that you haven't repented and every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses that's the old testament standard and a good one and paul said i've been there two times this is my third time i myself am the second and third witness i'll see it two and three times if you will and so uh, if it's still true then then i'll have to to discipline you've been saying you haven't seen christ at work in me well you will You saw him work in you when I first arrived. You saw him work powerfully when the gospel came and you were converted. And if you want to see it again, sadly, I hope it doesn't have to happen in this time of discipline when I come to you. Jesus was weak. And in his weakness on the cross, we saw the power of God at work in him. And now he lives. You see me in weakness, but he lives in me. And thus you'll see the power of God. And so then he comes to these words in verse 5. Commandment, a command really. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Now why 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 does he say that here? Why does he tell them to examine themselves, to test themselves, to see if they're in the faith, to see, to affirm really that Christ lives in them? Why does he say that at this point in time? Surely it's because there may be some in Corinth who aren't believers and he's, he's asking them, I want you to examine yourself to make sure you're really in the faith. These false apostles have come in, you've believed them. Well, what does that really mean about your faith? In whom do you really believe? So no doubt that there are others who claim to believe, but in, living in this gross sinfulness, And so he wants to bring them to repentance. So examine yourself. Examine your own heart. Christ is in you. How can you be living this way? And so he wants those to come to repentance. But not only that, he's asking, examine yourself. And if you're really in the faith, which he believes that's what they'll find. They'll also be able to say, oh, the gospel you preach, Paul, must be the true one. That is what has really saved me. And Paul says, goes on to say that his prayer for them is, is, is that they will not do wrong, that is, do what is right. 
Because he says, I don't, again, I don't really care about myself. This, I'm not in it for me. I, I don't care if I'm vindicated. As long as your faith is strong, I'm willing to be viewed by you as weak. That's all right. All I care about is your faith in Jesus, that your faith is strong. So what's it mean to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith? Certainly that's an apt expression in the faith because we know that all the blessings that come to us by way of what Christ has done are because we believe in him. Because of faith in him. And so it's an apt expression to refer to Christianity, if we would say, as we could say, as faith, the faith. The faith, really, uh, in him. And faith, really, is turning from self-reliance. It's resting not in ourselves, but in Jesus. It's depending not in ourselves, but in Jesus. It's relying upon not ourselves, but in Jesus. When I was a little kid, maybe this is true for some of you as well, in Sunday school, the definition of faith that we learned was an acrostic, F-A-I-T-H, right? Forsaking all, I... Take him. Forsaking all, I take him. That is, I'm going to forsake trust in anyone, in anything else, to define me, tell me who I am, to, to direct me, tell me how I'm to live, and, whom, and even to delight in. I'm going to forsake all of that and take, or trust, you could say, uh, Jesus In the old wedding ceremonies, there's always a little expression where the bride and groom would look at each other and make the expression, forsaking all others. And there you see this moment of this couple coming together and basically saying, I'm going to forsake every other human being other than you to find intimacy and marital happiness. In you. So I think there's so many tears at weddings. <laughs> Sometimes they go, because it's such a great and awesome moment. Forsaking all others. And that's what we do when we believe, when we come to faith in Jesus. That's our testimony, if you will. I'm forsaking any self-reliance. I'm forsaking any hope in the world. And I'm taking, I'm trusting in Jesus, faith in Christ alone. And then this other expression, Christ in you. You see, there's an intimacy. Believers who believe in Jesus, that he lives in us. You might remember when Jesus was with his disciples again on that most intimate night. uh, The night that he was betrayed the night before his crucifixion. He's with his disciples and John records it in chapter 14 and verse 20. He puts it like this. Jesus does. Let me begin with verse 18. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And later verse 23. And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then in chapter 15, Jesus will use language, at least as we translate it, to live in us, to abide in us. Chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, I'm going to live in you. That's this, this, this sense. And you see, when Jesus lives in us, that kind of intimacy, what he means is that his life, eternal life, the very life of God, the very life from God lives in us. In Romans, in chapter 8, verse 10, Paul will put it, Paul will put it like this. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The way that Jesus lives in us is by his spirit. He sends his spirit and gives us his very life in us. It happened with each of my kids when we talked to them about believing in Jesus. And we'd say, when you believe Jesus lives in you, every single one of them went to the mirror and went, all right? Where is he? And he, yes, by his spirit, he lives in us and his life is in us. You know, this verse I trust from Galatians in chapter 2 in verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? He's the vine, we're the branches. There's this Intimate, spiritual connection, union between us. So that his very life is in us. And it animates us. It gives us spiritual life. It reconciles us to God. In Galatians, in chapter 4, later on, verse 19, Paul speaks of, of his prayer for them. He says, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see, all the while he lives in us to be, to be formed in us, his very character uh, in us. Ephesians in chapter 3 and verse uh, 16, Paul's prayer, he says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ May dwell, and the word dwell there means dwell permanently. Make his home in you. May dwell in your hearts through faith. And then finally, Colossians in chapter 1, in verse 27, the apostle writes this. He says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the hope that we have hope for glory to be ultimately in the presence of God conformed to the image of Jesus is that right now he dwells within us. His life is in us now. 
He will keep us, always transforming us. And a day will come when we will be in his very presence. Now, what this tells us, the implications of this, is that when Paul says, examine yourself, test yourself, is he says, we can actually have assurance that we belong uh, to God through Jesus Christ. We can actually have assurance. What he's saying to them is test yourself, examine yourself, so that you'll know that you're in the faith. And, 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 the, and, and that's so crucial for us. See, here are the possibilities. The possibilities are these. One, that a person isn't saved, that is lost, is not salvation, and knows it. There are all kinds of people out there, if you ask them, uh, are you uh, uh, saved in, in the Christian way? That is, do you, do you understand salvation through faith in Christ? Are you a believer in Jesus? And they'll simply say, no, I get it. I, I know that I'm not. I don't have this salvation that you Christians talk about. And they're content with that. Sadly, but true. They're not saved. And they know it. Uh, now there are people who think they're saved, but aren't. That's the dangerous ones. You remember there were those Jesus said to him, will come to him on the last day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he will say to them, I never knew you. And that'll be a surprise to them. They will have thought themselves to be saved, but aren't. In fact, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, he speaks uh, about those again who who give the indication to themselves and to others that they really are saved, but but they're not. You remember uh, the parable of the sower. Uh, Jesus talks about this farmer who goes out and sows seed, and some of the seed falls on the side of the road, and it's eaten up by birds, by Satan, and so there's there's no evidence of anything, and so there's no salvation that comes there at all. And then at the very end, there are those who 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 are fruitful, and so you see the fruit of it. So yes, they know that they're they're saved. But then, in the middle of that, uh, Jesus says, "As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. It is no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation um, or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. In other words, in other words, there's this sense. Oh yes, I do believe. You see, I." Maybe I went forward at a meeting or, or, or maybe I prayed a prayer with someone or, or maybe uh, I, I attended church or attend church or maybe I was baptized or whatever it is, whatever indication you have that, oh, yes, I really do believe. But, but, but then when it's tested, in this case, when he says it's tested with tribulation, difficulties or persecution comes about because you've made this profession of faith and you back away. You go, oh. Thought, yes. Not really. Then as verse 22 of chapter 13 of Matthew, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. In other words, that that it looked good for a while, um, but then there are all these other things that came in and in a sense choked it out. And then of course, uh, there are those who are saved and know it. And, and that's really to be the norm. We're to examine ourselves and really know that we're in the faith. We should actually know it. Uh, we have all kinds of promises that, that these things are really 
true and that believers will indeed uh, persevere uh, to the end. You remember how Jesus put it in, uh, John has it in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. I mean, what greater assurance than that? The question is, do I believe in him? And Jesus says, if you believe in me, I'll not cast you out. And of course, John chapter 10, John speaks like this. Jesus speaks like this, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and I and the father are one. He says, so my sheep, they hear my voice. When I call them, they come. And, 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 and when they come, you see, I'll protect them. I'll give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them away from me because I'm the good shepherd. So they're secure. You know what Paul writes in Romans in chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in all creation. Right? He kind of says, okay, I don't have time to list at all. So anything. There's absolutely, positively nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus lives to make intercession for us, to defend us. So as long as he lives, we are safe. Okay? So we have that assurance, and and that's really what he's talking about in a sense here. Test yourself, examine yourself, to see if you're in the faith, because if you're in the faith, you're in the faith. If Christ lives in you, he lives in you. And so, examine, test yourself. Now it is true, there are some always who are saved, but struggle with that. And sometimes it's, at least by way of my experience and the experience of others who talk to a lot of people about these things, realize there's, for whatever else to say, a certain temperament or certain temperaments that find it really difficult to feel ever secure, have this subjective security. And for folks like that, I continue to go back with them, and you should continue to go back in your own life if this is true for you. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Who is Jesus? What did he do? Who is Jesus? What did he do? Do I need anything other than Jesus? Continually going back and rehearsing over and over and over and over again the objective truth of what Jesus has done, who Jesus really is. Did he die for the sins of sinners? Am I one? Is there any sin that Jesus uh, didn't die for? No. 
Well, he says uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't forgivable. But remember, it's the Holy Spirit who gives testimony of the truth of Jesus. And so to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to deny over and over and over again, continually throughout the course of your life. Oh, Jesus isn't the Christ. But do you believe that he is? Yes. Oh. So continue to do that. Sometimes it's true that there's a simply bad theology that for whatever reason we're strapped with. Uh, this uh, past week, as you know, Karen and I and Ed White went with us to uh, Jerry Bridges' funeral. And, and a number of little Jerryisms kept coming up with all the people that were there as we were talking, kind of working through our own uh, loss together. And, uh, and, and we remembered very often um, Jesus' teaching that we're to, I mean, Jerry's teaching, which is Jesus' too, but Jerry's teaching that uh, we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Uh, this sense that we're saved by the gospel, by believing in Jesus, right? The gospel is the message of salvation to us. We grab a hold of it by faith and we believe. But we're also to live by the gospel. It isn't that we're saved by faith and then we're to live by works. But sometimes we think we are. Well, sometimes we think I'm saved and now for, therefore my obligation now is just to do the best I can for the rest of my life. And after a while and trying that out and you get weary from that and you wonder, am I really a believer? Am I really saved or not? And, 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 and we have to go back to the gospel and say, oh yes, I'm saved from first to last by this declaration of what Christ has done. I'm saved by his life and death and resurrection and his present intercession. I, I'm saved by him. Sometimes bad theology uh, leads to a lack of assurance. And sometimes, frankly, when we're in the midst of deep sin, unrepentant sin, we begin to drift away. And we wonder, am I really saved? In fact, there are times when friends, Christian professing friends, are in deep sin and they come and they're unwilling to repent of their sin to acknowledge it, to ask God to enable them to turn from it. And we have to say to them, I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I can't offer you assurance at the moment because you know this sin and yet you're unwilling to repent of it. So no wonder you wonder if you're really a believer or not, if you're really saved or not. But repent of your sin. And I trust assurance will come. And then sometimes there are circumstances, let's face it, sometimes there are circumstances that so uh, come against us. As the psalmist would say, God, where are you? Where are you? And so again, at times like that, amongst friends, we need to go and shore one another up and encourage one another, as the author of Hebrews says, as long as it's called today, uh, so that none of us has an unbelieving heart or a hardened heart. Ah, sometimes circumstances. But Paul says here, we can really know. He says here, examine yourself, test yourself to see if you're really in the face. So, so what's the test? Very quickly, the tests go like this. The women of the church are studying First John, so you know this already. 
Uh, you know that there's a doctrinal test. And you know, as, as John talks about in his first epistle, and you know that there's a character, a moral test, an obedience test, if you will. There's a relational test. And, and those tests go something like this. First and foremost, who is it that, that is this Jesus in whom you believe? Who is it that you're trusting in? It isn't the Jesus of your own imagination. It isn't the Jesus you want him to be or think he should be. It's the Jesus that comes by way of the scripture and uh, through um, these apostles. That the, the, the true Jesus, the one who came and lived and died. In fact, John in his epistle is, is very uh, blunt and very clear about um, who this Jesus is. For instance, in 1 John and uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 22. Who's the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, um, this is the Antichrist. Uh, he who denies Father and Son. No one who denies the Son is the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father over also. And then in chapter 4 and verse 2, John writes, By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. In, in other words, to believe, if you will, this Jesus who is the word made flesh who dwelt among us. That Jesus, the very son of God, this God man who has come. And he's the Christ. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, the, the word Christ is simply the word Messiah or deliverer. And the, and the Christ means the anointed one. And the ones who were anointed in the Old Covenant were prophets and priests and kings. And so what we're saying about this Jesus is he's the prophet. He's the one who brings the truth from God. He is the priest. He's the one who comes and represents us before God. And he's the king. He's the one who rules and reigns over all sin and death. And what we're saying about ourselves, you see, when we're testing ourselves to see if, 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 we, if we're in the faith, to see if he really lives in us, is asking, okay, who is this Jesus and what does this say about us? Well, it says that I need a revelation. I need someone. I need a prophet to come and speak to me the truth. I need a priest to come and represent me and show me the way and be the way for me. And I need a king to come and rule over all things and give me life. And that's exactly what Jesus said of himself. That he was the way, the truth, and the life. He's the king and the, he's, the, he's, he's the, the, the priest and the prophet and the king. And so we're saying that Jesus, I believe in him. But not only that, not only that, and this is what Paul was getting at when he talked to the church in Corinth. This faith in Jesus is to manifest itself in your life. Now, the first test isn't your life. The first test is always in whom do you believe? Because our life test will always fail us at some level. Our life test on how I'm living my life will always see sin, will always see flaws, will always see that we, we fall short of 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 walking as Jesus walked, as John put it in those opening verses of chapter 2 in his first epistle. So, so we always fall short of that. So we're always going back in our mind of, of this uh, understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And so that's the key to it. But that, Paul says, should impact our life. We should see evidence of that. We should see evidence of that in our desires to obey. We see evidence of that in our sensitivity to sin. 
As we've always said, when the time between we sin and the time between we confess it shortens that spiritual maturity that's growing in Christ, you see. Because our desires have now changed and we see it and we want to grow in him. That's good to see in your life. That's evidence that he lives in you. The expression in Ephesians in chapter 3, where Paul prays that Christ would dwell in us. He means dwell in us permanently. That is to make his home in us. That is to remodel. It means to redecorate. It means to take out everything in us that doesn't resemble him. Everything in us that doesn't give the impression that he lives there. Everything in us that isn't to his liking. I mean, many of you remodeled homes or redecorated your houses in various and sundry ways. And at the end of time, it reflects who you are. When people come into my house, they often say, Bill, you have such a nice house. And I go, no, 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 this is hers, right? I mean, this resembles, fortunately, uh, when you walk into our house, you, you see that Karen lives there. Uh, me too, but Karen lives there. And that's a good thing. And it should be in the context of our lives that when people see us, they say, oh yes, Jesus lives there. And so Paul says to the church in Corinth, the things that are taking place among you shouldn't be. You should be confessing them. You should be repenting of these sins. And you should be turning from them. So you need to ask yourself, do I believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the prophet, the priest, the king, the one who speaks the truth, the one who is the truth, the one who represents me because I need it. I can't represent myself in the courts of heaven. And the one who's given himself for me as an atoning sacrifice for my sin. Do I trust him? The one who rules and reigns over all things. And if he really is the king, do I follow him? Do I obey him? Is that my heart's desire? Is that my delight in life? And he says, so examine yourself. So we have it here before us, obviously. When we take what we call our communion liturgy from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The apostle says that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the apostle went on to say, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. So as we are here this morning, we need to do exactly what Paul goes on to say In 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, he says, examine yourselves. As you come to the table, examine yourself. And he says something very interesting there. He says, you need to rightly discern the body. What does he mean by that? Well, 
Surely he means to rightly discern the body of Jesus. That is, do you really believe in this Jesus who gave himself for us? Do you really believe that he's the prophet, he's the one who has the truth of God and he brings it to us that salvation is only through faith in him, not in ourselves? Do you really believe that he's the priest, that he has given himself a sacrifice and represented us before God, that we may come through him? Do we really believe that he's the king and he's conquered sin and death? And we're secure in him that he'll protect us, that he'll keep us, and that he rules over us, and we're to follow, obey him. And then also this, rightly discern the body, that is the body of Christ, that is the church. He's going to go on to talk about the church, the body of Christ, and, and how we're to relate to one another. And, and he's, in, in a sense, do we really realize too what, what it means is, that when we obey him, we're to love one another. Do we get that? So we're to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Do we believe? Do we live? Examine ourselves to see, is Christ really in us? Do we see his presence In our faith, do we see his presence in our lives? Let's pray. Father, we take this moment, each one of us, to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, to see if Christ lives in us. We acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Word became flesh, the one who dwells among us. We believe that He is the truth. There is no truth outside of him. He comes and speaks to us and is for us all that is true and right about God and what is to be right about us. And he's the way that he's the priest who represents us before God and makes sacrifice and is the sacrifice for our sins and he's the king who rules over all and is our very life and we realize too that we're to live as those who give evidence of Christ in us that we're to obey that we're to love Forgive us, I pray, each of us. For when that isn't true, when we're not obeying, we're not not really loving one another as we ought, 
when people would look at us and not see Christ in us. But even as we confess, we ask and receive your forgiveness and pray your spirit to be upon us in such a way that Christ would indeed be formed in us, that the fruit of the spirit would be evidence in us. And even now we ask that you would set this bread and this juice apart in such a way that through it we would know that we were in the very presence of Jesus. And even as we come to this table, that it would be a declaring that we're in the faith and Christ is in us. And that you would strengthen us in the faith and strengthen the very presence of Christ in us. And this I pray in Jesus' name.